Good morning. morning. Welcome to Lake County Presbyterian Church. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. Whether you're a longtime member or a first-time visitor or on the live stream, we are so glad you've joined us on this Lord's Day. A couple of announcements for you. Uh, First, if you are on the inside of the row, you can reach under our brand new chairs, uh, still smell the the freshness from them, uh, and get the friendship pad started. Uh, Again, that's just a way for us to know who's here, and if you want to leave contact information, a way for us to reach out and and tell you a little bit more about us as a church. A couple of reminders. Uh, If you weren't able to join us this morning, we do have learning communities each Sunday that start at 9.15. We have it for toddlers, elementary, all the way up through youth and adults. Um, And so there's something for everyone. Please do come out and join us for that, a way to uh, learn from God's word, but also get to spend time with others and and build relationships. Uh, In the same vein, we have our second missional community gathering, which is our church's small group ministry. Uh, That is this Wednesday. Uh, We do ask that you would bring a side, but we'll provide a meal. And again, that's a way for you to uh, dive deep into the, into the Word of God, but also to, to build connections and uh, just invest in others' lives around you as they invest in your life. So please do join us for that this Wednesday. Something we're really excited about that is not in your bulletin is we're having a prayer meeting uh, this Saturday at 9 a.m. The goal is to, uh, one, obviously pray Uh, But really, we want to show you all the work that has been done and is in the process of being done uh, as we walk through those places and pray in those places. I think that's going to be a really cool experience to go into those unfinished spaces, spaces, but begin to dream and envision what those spaces are going to be used for. So uh, I think that's going to be an awesome time, and we would love to have everyone come out. That's Saturday at 9 a.m. Our fall festival is coming up. That's October 29th. Uh, No registration is required if you want to attend. It's open to everyone. Uh, Whether you're one or you're 91, we would love to have you come out uh, and join us for that. Uh, However, if you want to have a trunk, uh, we would ask that you would register for that. There's a sign-up sheet out in the narthex. As well as if you're going to have a trunk, there's an option to have a second space next to you where you have a fun activity for the kids to do as they come to your trunk. Uh, if you want to do that, just go ahead and indicate that on the sign-up sheet. There will be prizes for best trunk, so I'm just putting that out there now. Uh, there will be prizes for best trunk and I think for best dress as well. So get those ideas flowing now. We have a, a very special guest this morning. Jim Shepard is here. He's our guest preacher. Uh, we're very blessed to have him, and I know that Um, He's going to bless us with the word this morning. He is an expert on all things stewardship and discipleship, and uh, we'll very much look forward to hearing from him later on this morning. As always, you can look on our website or look in your bulletin for other announcements, but with all of that, let's prepare our hearts for worship as we listen to the prelude.
Amen. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 100. Hear these words now as God invites us and initiates towards us to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are faithful and you are good. Father, this morning we come before you and we want to come before you singing your praises. Father, you are worthy of all praise, worthy of all glory. Would you align our hearts this morning to worship you, fix our eyes on the things above, not on the things of this earth, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship God by singing the church's one foundation.
name is Pastor Mike Palumbo, and as we continue this service, we want to consider, consider this close connection that God has called us to enjoy. God has designed us for a relationship, even as we sang in this last lyric, that he has made us for union with God three in one. This is a mystic and even sweet communion. But sadly, many of us have lived more disconnected rather than connected to God. Rather than seeking daily connection, knowing his steadfast love for us, delighting in his goodness, abiding in his love, we run far from God. Instead of being faithful, we have forgotten God and his goodness and his grace. Rather than feasting in the delights of his goodness and love, we have chased after forgiven loves. And this is every one of our story. So the reason why we confess our sins is not only that we would know God's forgiveness in Christ, but that we would reconnect with him in deep fellowship and joy in his mercy. So here this need of confession taken from Psalm 78. This is Psalm 78, verse 17 through 18. Yet I then stilled, they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. In this time of confession, we confess to the Lord the ways in which we have craved things apart from him. We confess our sins to the God of mercy. We'll do that first personally and privately, and then I'll lead us in a corporate confession of sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, hear our confession. Lord, have mercy on us through Christ, our Savior. Please join your voices with me with this confession of sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Well, it's my joy to share the good news of the gospel for all who trust in Jesus for their salvation. Hear this assurance of pardon from Galatians 3, verse 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Beloved, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus bore the consequence of our sin. He bore the curse that we would get the blessing. How did he do this? He died our death in our place. He rose victoriously, giving us the assurance that we are forgiven in Christ and set free to live for him. Why don't we stand, if you're able, and let us sing to our gracious Father about his world.
be seated. Well, this is our Father's world that he loves, that he came to die for. This is our Father's world that he cares for daily in his providence. And so we pray to our God and Father, uh, trusting that he is at work in our midst. I do want to encourage you to come out next Saturday. I'll be leading our time of praying. Uh, As the labor of construction happens, there's great labor we can be doing right now. And that is the labor of prayer. So please do join us next Saturday and we'll go ahead and begin praying together. We begin by praying the Lord's Prayer together and then I'll lead us in a pastoral prayer. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. We praise you as the purposeful creator of all things. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We thank you, Father, that you have set this earth and its foundations. No matter how much it is shaken, it is secure in the sovereign rule and reign of its eternal king. We bless you, O God, that your works are manifold. In wisdom you have made them all, and you are the governor of all things, including our lives. We bless you for your good creation. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, O God, to advance your kingdom here in this earth as stewards of your creation. Lord, we marvel with you along with Psalm 8. We look at the heavens, the stars, the sky, everything that has been made, and we say, who are you, O God, that you would be mindful of us? Who are you that you would even care for us? Why would you look on us with love? And yet you do. You crown us with your steadfast love and faithfulness. You have given to us real responsibility as agents of flourishing in this creation. You have given dominion over the works of our hands. and You have put all things under our feet. Oh Lord, what good God you are that you would give us responsibility to care for creatures, for people, for the physical world around us. Oh Father, help us to manage these in a way that points to your generous and governing God. Help us to manage these things in a way that reflects Christ our Lord. For we know that we do not labor for ourselves or our own glory, but for the glory of Christ our King. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to trust in Jesus as we go about our daily labor, as we work our daily jobs, as we go about our daily walk, as we go about loving our families and our neighbors. O Lord, help us to bear witness to this great creator King who has entered into this world to live, to die, and to rise for it. Oh, Father, we pray your kingdom would come with Jim and Karen and Nathan Frederick and MTW in Queens, New York. As they go about doing the work and ministry in a diverse population where there are many people from many other places, we pray, oh God, that your gospel would reign supreme, that Christ would be glorified and exalted and lifted high. Lord, we pray for these two women in their update, these two Muslim girls who are wondering how they can access this God. This God who seems so holy and beyond reach, oh Lord, help them to see that he is near and dear to them through Jesus who lived, died, and rose for them. Would you multiply this ministry and reach many people, not only in Queens, New York, but throughout New York and this nation. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give to us our daily bread. And Lord, as we pray this, we acknowledge that you open your hand and satisfy the desires of all who look to you. 
It is your hand that gives us the food that we eat. It is your hand that gifts us with our abilities. It is your hand that places us in our families and our neighborhoods. Oh, Father, help all who suffer and look to you for help. We pray for Suzanne Schumacher. Lord, as she continues in hospice care, as she is uh, close to arriving at her final destination in the arms of your love, oh, Lord, shelter her under your wings. Be her refuge and her rock. For Kent, oh God, give him strength to serve his wife all the way and up into the end. And Lord, help him to care for her with your care. Oh, Father, we pray that you would have mercy on the, on the Schumacher family. We pray also for ongoing recovery for Ruby Wilson and Lynn Bunsen, Dick Pomeroli and Bonnie Garmany, Margie Shepard, Bruce and Donna Page, Karen Stott, Carol Oxford and Scott Patterson. For others that are grieving the loss of their loved ones, oh God, be present in their absence. Help them to trust in their promise that you are faithful and you have not forsaken them. And, O oh Lord, forgive us our debts. Lead us this week in your righteousness. Help us to trust your gospel promise that Christ is better, that we would turn from sin and trust in Jesus. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time now we give to the Lord his offerings because he owns it all. And he has graciously given us all things. So let us give generously to his glory. If you have children pre-K through second, they can go to the children's worship after the second song, the doxology. Let's give to the Lord.
Well, good morning. Let me add my good morning to those that have already been offered. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, it's good to be back here. Uh, this is familiar territory for Nancy and me. We had a home, a second home, out here at Lake Oconee from 1997 to 2007. We went to the storefront up on 44. Uh, remember fondly when the first renderings of this building were shown on the phone boards in the, uh, in the storefront. Remember the groundbreaking. We were not here the first Sunday, but I think we were here within the first month that uh, the congregation worshipped here. So this was kind of our second home for a while. Uh, we live in Atlanta in the Duluth-Johns Creek area. Uh, Perimeter Church is our home church where we got to know Bob and Cornelia when they were there. Uh, some years ago, been great friends of ours over the years. Um, I serve as an elder there, one of the ruling elders there. We have a lot of ruling elders, so don't think that that's any real, right? We have a lot of ruling elders at Perimeter Church, right, Bob? Um, and, and I'm from here, uh, the area. I grew up in Augusta. Augusta was my home. Grew up right outside the uh, front gate of the Augusta National Golf Club, so as you can imagine, I learned to play golf at an early age. Uh, went to school in, in Athens. And then uh, ended up in Atlanta, and we've been there ever since. Great, great to be there. And uh, I actually remember the lake when the lake was not a lake. Anybody remember that? Anybody from around here remember when just pine trees? And then they flooded it, and it's like, well, we got a lake here now. And that was many years ago. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff and Bob, for inviting me. Um, you all have been in Nehemiah for the last few weeks. Uh, rebuild, restore, and renew. I won't go into Nehemiah because I can get caught up in Nehemiah and I can talk about him for a while. He's one of my favorite leaders in the Old Testament. I love what he did, but the main thing is I love his heart for people. It was the burden that Nehemiah had for people that drove him to do all these crazy, crazy things that he did for God's name. I love Nehemiah. This morning I want to take you into a different place, Holy Habits, five things that marked the early church. I want to set the scene. I want to talk about five habits. I'm going to go through four of them rather quickly. I'm going to camp on number five for a little while. And then at the end, I want to challenge us. What might we learn from what God's trying to say to us in and through this text? Um, before we do that, let's pause and let me ask God to come into the room and just be with us and soften our hearts, soften my heart, even as he brings this word to your heart. Father, you have something to say here this morning. I don't. And so, would you say what you want to say, and would you nudge this unholy, unrighteous, and unworthy person out of your way, that you might speak to your people, that you might bring honor and glory to your name, through what I might say here this morning. Father, for your name's sake and for your glory, amen. Um, I grew up in the home of a, uh, a mom who had a degree in English education. She actually had a master's degree in English education. So. Uh, at my house, I got it at school and I got it at home. The meaning of words was very important. Sometimes I think we toss words around and we don't stop to think what they really mean. This word holy, what does holy really mean? I looked it up just to make sure that I was on solid ground. It means dedicated or consecrated to God and his purposes. Sacred. Holy habits. So if we look in the early habits of the church, we find that really kind of very, very quickly in the book of Acts. It's in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. My version here is the English Standard Version. I don't recall which version was in your uh, bulletin this morning, but I'm reading from the English Standard. And it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 
and awe came upon, and I'm going to emphasize some words here, every soul. And many signs and wonder, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's set the scene here. We've got the book of Acts. The book of Acts, I think you all know this, but for for a refresher course for all of us, the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. It was written by Luke. Yes, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician. He had a very, very specific purpose in writing this. Um, He is in the book of Luke. His goal was to present a true and orderly account that establishes the facts of Jesus' ministry, their importance in salvation history, and to guide the church as it preaches repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name to all the nations. Now, this is important. He, he, Luke is, is, was not an eyewitness, but if he was, excuse me, Luke was an eyewitness to most of it, and if he was not an eyewitness, he made it clear, I spoke to an eyewitness. So there's no, I heard that somebody said that somebody said, if Luke didn't see it with his own eyes, he talked to Bob, and Bob saw it with his own eyes, and Bob was trustworthy. So it's important for us to know that, because Luke wanted us to hear that. In the book of Acts, he had a different uh, mission, and it was to guide the church in his continuing mission by describing how the Holy Spirit empowered these early apostles to spread their witness on Christ's behalf to the Gentile world. If you've read the book of Acts, it reads like, like an adventure story. I remember early on after Nancy and I became believers, both of us became believers as adults, and we got into a church, and we went through the Bible, you know, the disciple Bible study in the Methodist church, if any of you are familiar with that. And I remember reading through the book of Acts as an adult, and I was like, wow, I've read some novels that aren't this good. And, not, and it was unbelievable some of the things that happened. We won't go into that. We're trying to focus on what's here today. But this really is the first early gatherings of the church. This is not the early centuries, the first century church. This is the first church right here. This is the first time that the people who were called by my name gathered in this gathering called Ecclesia, this thing that Jesus spoke to Peter about at at Caesarea Philippi when he said, I'm going to build my church and it's going to be on you, buddy. You're going to be the rock. Acts 1, verses 6 through 8 gives us some context here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, his followers were still thinking that Jesus had come to overthrow the government. They were concerned about Rome. They were concerned about the enemy they could see. And what Jesus wanted to make clear to them was, that's not the enemy that I came to fight. The apostles and the early disciples, especially those that were among the 12, they were concerned that he was going to overthrow the government. And he said, no, 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 I came for a much bigger mission. I came to take on the serpent, the one who infected mankind, who came in the garden of evil. I came to crush his head. And so there was a a great misunderstanding about what Jesus was really sent here to do. And there was, as you know, 
with many of the disciples, there was, there was disappointment. Because if you thought he came to take on Rome, and he didn't take on Rome, and he went on this cross, and he died a, a shameful death in a, in, a, in a mock trial that made no sense in the justice system of the day, this is not your guy. But he came on to take on something much bigger than that. Ephesians 6.12, For we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I didn't come to take on Rome. I came to take on the influences that cause Rome to be what it is. And right before the, what we have today, we had Pentecost, Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see, here's what, what the main point of that is, or at least one of the main points of that is, is that the confusion that occurred at Babel is now undone at Pentecost. The misunderstandings and the confused languages at, that happened at the Tower of Babel are now unconfused and understand in a new light by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has unleashed in the world. At Babel, the scattering was an act of judgment in response to disobedience, and it brought incomprehension and fracture. At Pentecost, it's an act of blessing in response to obedience, bringing new understanding and unity. And so it's in that context that we find ourselves now in Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. Interestingly, in the passages that lead up to this, we're in the general conversations in public. And now we're being led into what's really happening in the private gatherings of the early church. Luke takes us into those gatherings and he shows us some of the defining marks of the early church. The believers were together. The apostles are teaching. They have fellowship with one another. They celebrated communion, no surprise there. And they prayed. And friends, they didn't make this up. This wasn't really hard because this is what Jesus did when he was among them. Any fans of The Chosen in here? Anybody watch The Chosen? If, if you, I, I encourage you to get The Chosen and check it out what it must have been like, or what it might have been like for those early Galileans in their encounter with Jesus. And Dallas Jenkins does a marvelous job in bringing humanity to things that are really sometimes very hard for us to understand. So I would just lift that up to you, you can see it. But they learned it from Jesus, and they repeated it in the early church, single-mindedly, devoted themselves to these essential elements of Christian discipleship. Fellowship here has a very particular reference to that of sharing material resources with those in need, possessions, food, and money. Pay particular attention, and all who believe were together and had all things in common. Now, there are those who would jump out and say, well, well Jim, that sounds like socialism. And, and I mean, so, no, 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 socialism is mandated. This was voluntary. By the voluntary submission of their hearts, they were doing this one with another. And so it was a form of ecclesia, a form of koinonia, a form of fellowship that had not been known generally until that time. And I'm going to point out something in a minute that will just really bring it to light. Uh, and there were really no people with needs. If you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, one of the things that makes their story, you know, they, they, they had, had sold a piece of land and they had brought it back to the fellowship and it said it was all of the proceeds, but they had withheld some of it. 
And so there were two things that happened there. Number one, they broke the perfect communion and fellowship that was there. And secondly, they engaged in a very selfish act. And of course, the penalty was severe. I still don't understand why they had to die for that. Maybe God can explain that to me one day. I can understand how they had to be punished, but they're gone. I mean, it's a sudden story. So, let's talk about what these holy habits are. Four of them I want to cover, and then I want to camp on number five. Number five won't surprise you very much, and I'm camping on there, uh, because as, uh, as you heard earlier, uh, the thing that I do, I head up an organization called Generis, where a uh, consulting firm help churches and kingdom-minded organizations in giving development. It's what I've given my life to for the last 31 years. So it won't surprise you that number five has a lot to do with that. But let's go through the first four because they're really important to set the scene for us. Number one, their hearts were divided, devoted to holy teaching. Holy teaching. The first holy habit we observe is their unwavering commitment to the apostles' teaching. They eagerly embraced the teachings of the apostles and they, 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 they recognized them as the authoritative word of Christ. Remember, in those days, they didn't have they certainly didn't have the paper version. They didn't have the digital version that we have. And we have access to, I think I've got six or seven versions on mine here, just right here. They didn't have access to that. They, were, they depended on this storytelling, this teaching in these gatherings. And they devoted themselves to studying the scriptures and understanding the profound truths that were revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And their devotion to the apostles' teaching ensured a solid foundation for their faith and allowed them to grow in spiritual maturity. It's an important part of that. And today this habit reminds us of the importance of studying God's Word, seeking a deep understanding of His truth and applying it to our lives. We have to be devoted to the habit of holy teaching. They had holy habit number two. Their hearts were devoted to holy fellowship. They were marked by a genuine sense of wanting to be around each other. Wanting to be around each other. They gathered together regularly. They shared their lives, their experiences, and their resources with one another. They engaged in deep relationships. You can see this in the conversations that occur in the book of Acts. Lots of really deep conversations between them. And this holy habit cultivated an environment of love and unity and care within the church, fostering an atmosphere where they were treated and cared for spiritually, and they thrived in that. As modern-day believers, we're called to do the same thing, to cultivate authentic fellowship within our communities and demonstrate love, compassion, and selflessness toward one another. And we do that inside of our body so that we can then go outside of our body and live out this Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as Jesus called us to do. And they were together. It's important to be together. COVID taught us that, didn't it? I don't know about you, but, you know, I got uh, a little bit accustomed to to being together, and then I got a little bit accustomed to being at home, and I didn't realize how much I missed it until our church started meeting back again. And we went back there, and I was like, we really missed this. Nancy teared up. I'll never forget it. She was there. She said, I really missed this. We were meant to be together. God put that in our hearts. That is not an accident. It's not a human thing as much as we want it to. It's a God-invoked conviction that we live together in fellowship. The gathered church is actually Jesus' vision for changing the world. I love kingdom nonprofits. There are so many of them. Nancy and I support some of them. But you can't mistake that the work of the church, that is God's plan to change the world. That is his plan A, and he does not have a plan B. That's his plan. And you and I represent that plan. And the gathered body 
It's our, to, for us to gather separately, and, and it's great to gather separately and to edify each other in small groups, but that is in addition to, not in place of, the gathered body of Christ. And those of you who are here this morning, you know that. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know that. Holy habit number three, they, their hearts were devoted to the holy breaking of bread. When you had a meal with someone in the first century, when you had a meal with someone, that was deep, intimate fellowship. That was deep relationship. That's why the, the, the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the religious authorities said this about Jesus. This man talks with sinners and he eats with them. Can you believe that? He eats with them. That's how serious it was to have fellowship over a meal. And so for them, the breaking of bread was a significant holy habit in the early church. They took offense that Jesus ate with sinners. And so in this early church, they gathered to remember and proclaim the sacrificial death of Christ and partake in both communion and the breaking of daily bread. People ask, well, when they they talk about this breaking of bread, is that communion or is that supper? Yes, it's both, because both were important. You know, having dinner with someone was a, was, was a sign of intimate fellowship with them. Having communion, as we know in our tradition, invokes that remembrance of his sacrificial suffering and death on our behalf, doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And they knew this, even in the early church, in the very first century church. Jesus was not long departed from this earth, and they already knew this. This act of remembrance, as it does with us today, deepened their relationship with Christ and with fellow believers, reinforcing their commitment to the body of Christ. And as followers of Jesus today, we are encouraged to continue the practice of breaking of bread, both here in communion and in our homes with others. Our homes can be one of the most effective places as we we bring people in who are not a part part of the body of, of faith today. Lots of people who don't know Jesus won't come through that door on a Sunday morning. They'll come through mine and your doors and spend time with us. They'll spend time with us at a restaurant, and it can be a great way for us to do that. So it's not only a place that we minister to each other inwardly, it's a place that we can reach out to an unknowing world. Holy habit number four. Hearts were devoted to holy prayer and worship. Prayer and worship were foundational habits of the early church, and, and Luke makes that very clear for us here. They devoted themselves to regular and fervent prayer, recognizing their dependence on God and and, and seeking His guidance, His wisdom, and intervention. And through worship, they expressed their adoration and gratitude to God, as we've done here today, acknowledging His sovereignty and His worthiness. Their commitment to prayer deepened their relationship with God and empowered them to live out their faith on a daily basis. Friends, I don't know about you, but I mean, for me, I think the priority of of prayer really helps me in four ways in my life. My guess is it's probably the same for you. Number one, I know when I pray, it reveals sin in my my life. As much as I like to think it happens when I'm standing in the shower, I'm in traffic, I'm oblivious to a lot of the sin that God wants me to see in my life, but when I'm quiet before Him and listen to His voice, I see and hear things that I I haven't seen and heard. And so it reveals sin in our lives. It drives us to repentance. When we see sin, and we know that even though it might be between me and another person, what do we know about sin? David said it in Psalm 51, his great confession, all sin is against you and you only, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. It might have been some, some harsh word that I said to a brother or sister or some situation I was in or whatever it was that I was doing, maybe a thought or 
whatever, a deed, whatever it was. But it should drive us to repentance, that we've broken his heart, and we should make that right with him. It reveals God's purpose and plans for us individually and collectively. I could give you a lot of stories about things I thought I was going to do, and then when I began to pray, God showed me something different. He showed me that maybe if I would step back and wait rather than going busting the door down for myself, he had a better plan than the plan that I had. Anybody but me have struggled with that one right there? I'm real good at going up and busting down doors and telling God what I did and asking him to come up and bless it. And what I find is he's looking over my shoulder in my quiet time and he's looking around and saying, well, I'm looking for something to bless. And I'm saying, well, go ahead. He says, well, I can't. I don't find anything with my name on it here. It's all got your name on it, Jim. Anybody but me struggle with that? And it empowers us by the presence of the Holy Spirit to do what he's actually called us to do. I find God calling me to do a lot of things that I would just prefer to wave off and say, hey, you know, God, that wasn't on my to-do list today. And yet he wants you to go do it anyway. Right? He wants you to go do it. A lot of that is in relational, is making up in, in relational things. I'm a hardwired, kind of blunt person, and sometimes in my bluntness, I don't have a, a, an unkind heart generally, but I'll say and do things that come across the wrong way. And I've got, you know, as we used to say when I worked in the grocery store when I was 16 years old, we had to do cleanup on aisle 12, you know. Anybody work in a grocery store when they were a kid? I hated when somebody dropped the mayonnaise. It wasn't in plastic jars back then. The mayonnaise. You could not, I mean, you could not... There was no plastic. It was in a glass jar, and there was a big version. And when it oh, I've had cleanups like that in my life too. That's that's a figurative illustration as well. Anytime they said that there was a cleanup on that aisle, you're just like, hey, I'm going to go out back and I'm going to take care of the trash. In our lives, prayer and worship are essential habits that allow us to connect with God intimately and experience His transformative power. I love this. Someone showed me this several years ago, and I can't let go of it. Uh, Oswald Chambers, any of most of his highest fans in the house? Classic devotional, right? October 17th, the, the idea is John 10:4, and he's talking about the greater works. But then he says this, he says in his words, he says, prayer does not equip us for greater works, prayer is the greater work. I'd never heard anybody say that. Until I, and I, I've read Oswald Chambers a number of times, and I had never, I'd never really seen that that was there. Yet we think of prayer as some common sense exercise of our higher powers that simply prepares us for God's work. In the teachings of Jesus Christ, prayer is the working of the miracle of redemption in me, which produces the miracle of redemption in others through the power of God. Oswald Chambers. Classic. So, the holy habit of prayer and worship. Number five, holy habit five. Hearts devoted to holy generosity. Acts 2, 42 through 47 paints a beautiful picture of the early church, a community of believers who were characterized by this deep commitment to one another in the cause of Christ. It describes a community where sacrificial generosity was not just a mere suggestion, but it was a way of life. They were a community of people who had a deep sense of unity and shared purpose, and as a result, they were willing to sacrifice their own comfort and possessions for the sake of others. And that was one of, their mo the mo one of the most striking characteristics of this community. It wasn't surprising that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't surprising that they divided, devoted themselves to, to being together. It wasn't surprising that they devoted themselves to worship, to prayer, to all. None of those were surprising. Though they were marks, they were not surprising. Number five is where it became surprising. 
all 44 and 45, verses 44 and 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I want to point something out here. Clark's commentary really makes this clear, and I'm going to read verbatim because he says it in a way that just, just I can't repeat and translate any better than what he says in this, in this passage. Perhaps this has not been well understood. At all the public religious feasts in Jerusalem, there was a sort of community of goods. So this community was not the differentiating factor. That's what I want you to see here. No man at such times hired houses or beds in Jerusalem. All were lent gratis by the owners, even the Jews. The same may be well supposed of their ovens, their cauldrons, their tables, their spits, and other utensils. Also provisions of water were made for them at the public expense. Therefore, a sort of community of goods was no strange thing at Jerusalem at such times as these. It appears, however, that the early church carried this much farther because we're informed that they sold their possessions and their goods and parted them to all as every man had need. That was the differentiating mark of the early church. If, if, if the treasury, if the common treasury was short, if there was nothing there, and Jeff had a need, Jeff, I've got a, I got a donkey, and I got a pig, and a chicken, and I'm going to go sell them, and I'm going to bring them, and I'm going to put them right here in the common treasury for you. No one did that. That was new. That was a new level of taking it much farther than anyone in the Jewish tradition had taken. It wasn't this community of everything in common. The Jews actually practiced that at the festivals. But it was taking it another step that marked the early church. It was not only an expression of their love for one another, it was a tangible dem demonstration of their commitment to the cause of, of Christ. And it's a mindset like we would want for ourselves that recognizes that everything we have is ultimately a gift from God is meant to use for His glory and for the good of others. We ought to be honest here. I spend a lot of time in churches across America. I've done this for 31 years now. The conversation about giving and generosity is widely misunderstood in the American church. Many people, many pastors, many church people don't even want to talk about it. And yet, in the, in, the, in the churches of America, a land of exceptional success, as a friend of mine likes to say, in the, in, in the, since the time of the end of, the World War, of World War II until today, the United States of America has had an outbreak of affluenza, the likes of which the world has never seen. It's a good way of saying it. So here's, here's what I would say. In the churches of America, a land of exceptional financial resources, many of our churches lack the resources they need to fulfill the vision that God has given them for their churches. Friends, it's sad, and it's unnecessary. Luke 16, verses 10 through 13 very confusing passage, but I want to straighten it out. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then, if, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, 
or he'll love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Mammon, if you're reading from the King James Version. This is the parable of the, of, of the dishonest manager, and it was very confusing the first time that I read that because I was like, what is Jesus commending here, dishonesty? Well, Jesus is perfectly righteous, and he's not capable of, condemn, of, of condoning something like that, so I must have missed it, and I did. Because what he's saying is this man used everything at his disposal to accomplish his mean, his end, even if you don't agree with that. And I really wish the children in the church, the people in the church, the children of the light would do the same. You see that? He was saying that this man that we want to heap judgment and condemnation on was actually doing a better job of stewarding what was given to him than the children of light tend to do with theirs. How we leverage the resources put under our stewardship, our management, is actually a test for us. In this case, he seems to be saying, which altar are you going to worship at? You see, once you're a Christ follower, your relationship with money is spiritual. I didn't realize that in the early years. Nancy and I became Christians on Palm Sunday, 1983, together. Uh, some people were surprised that she went down to the altar. No one was surprised that I went down. Let that sink in there for a second. She was nice. I was clearly lost. That was worth a little bit of a chuckle. Come on, y'all. I mean, my friends would actually ask, so did Nancy go down there to hold your hand because you needed to go? No, she went down there and made her own profession. And they was like, really? Because you, you see, no need to go into this. You know in Luke 15, you can be backyard lost and you can be far away lost. I was far away lost. But once you're a Christ follower, your relationship with money is spiritual. What you do with it is financial, but your relationship with it is spiritual. That's right there in that verse. If that's the case, then stewardship and giving is an encounter with God as it relates to our money and possessions. We think it's about giving to the church, but it's an encounter with God as it relates to our money and possessions, which results in our giving to the church. So it's a test of the deep formation that's happening in us, and it is the evidence of that formation. Interestingly, Jesus actually says the exact same thing in another place. I'm not a trained theologian, but I'm pretty sure about what I'm about to say. In many cases, the things that we see in, in, in Jesus' teaching are the same thing with three different people seeing it, or four different people. Right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there's plenty of cases like the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. We find that in Mark, we find that in Luke, and we find that in John. Same thing, it's just three different men telling the same story from their perspective. This is the only place where there are two completely different stories, and Jesus says the exact same thing. That ought to speak to us. So, in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus says again that money's going to have great power. It has the power to draw us away from him. No one, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. This is after he's talking about the eye is the lamp, is the lamp of the body. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. See, here's the thing. He didn't say you can't serve God and Satan. That was too obvious. You didn't need to be told that. You don't need to be told not to commit adultery. You don't need to be told not to steal and murder. You don't need to be told those things. You already know those things. He said something that was hidden, and he knew it would be a stumbling block for us. It was a stumbling block then, and it is today for us. It's a stumbling block for me. And I'm a guy who spends his time leading people in, in, in the churches of America trying to figure out how to give better, and it's a stumbling block for me. So I know if it's a struggle for me, it's probably a struggle for most everybody. 
You see, here's, here's what happens. The mammon thing, when you take it and, and, and translate it as money, it falls short of revealing the true meaning. Mammon is much more than money. Mammon is defined as materialism and worldly gain. It is material wealth regarded as having an even influence. It is like a god. It is personified as a false god, little g, in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. It's a deistic term. And friends, listen. Another uniqueness of this, it's the only place where Jesus used a deistic term to describe something other than himself, the Father, or the Holy Spirit. I think there's something he wants us to understand here. That this thing that we have in our pocket can be our friend, but it can also have the power to draw us away from the altar of the one true God. Do you see that? You can't worship too. You've got to choose which altar. I know we've got some people looking around here. Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but everybody's going to serve somebody. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. By what we do with our resources, by how we regard the money and possessions he's put under our custody, we're actually choosing an altar. So, we get hung up, and I hear this a lot, thinking the church is just after our money. And we ignore the reality that money really has this great spiritual power in our lives. Where I'm at, maybe this is you this morning, I don't know. A lot of people have a problem with the church and money. They think the church is after their money. I'll hear this, you know, pastors, hey, Jim, so I pre- you know, we're preaching and going through this series, and right there in context, and I'm getting these emails this morning, church is just after my money. Look, let me just say a few words about that. Church doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your money. And God doesn't need your money. And he probably doesn't even care about your money, because if you read Psalm 24.1, you don't have any. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You see, God's not after your money. God's after your heart. And so is the church. And God doesn't want the money out of your pocket, and neither does your church. But God does want the idols out of your heart, and so does your church. Our giving has the power to transform us, to sanctify us, and to make us a lot more like Jesus, but we don't realize that. And the stewardship of what he has put under our trust, our management, says more about our relationship with Jesus than almost any other facet of our lives. As one friend of mine says, it's the one thing you can't fake, Jim. It stands there and bears testimony to you and who you are and how much you truly love him and trust him and honor him. And friends, let me just say this to you. That has nothing to do with how much money your church needs. Nothing. That just happens to be the outcome that happens when we do that. Well, while I'm here and we're talking about that, let me just say a word about the tithe. One of those church words we use that we think everybody understands. Uh, My degree is in accounting and I minored in finance. And so I relate to numbers, but I didn't understand this tithe until my pastor explained to me early on when I'd become a believer, Jim, that's 10%. Take your W-2, move the decimal one place, that's your number. You know, for a God said it, I believe it, that settles it type person like me, that was all I needed to know. But that doesn't hit for everybody. It takes a lot more. 
what I'm, what I'm concerned about is I, as, I, as, I, as I go in the church today, and I watch that we're not teaching people properly about this, here's what's happening. There is this belief that giving is the mark of an unbeliever. Excuse me, mark of a believer. Simply giving is not the mark of a believer. Unbelievers give. Some unbelievers give magnificent amounts of money. To my knowledge, Bill Gates is not a Christ follower. If he is, then I'll have to be forgiven for that. But to my knowledge, he's not. That is not a statement of judgment or anything. But just to say, Bill Gates has given more money to solve malaria in Africa than the entire church in America combined. Think about that. Unbelievers give. So what is the mark of a believer? The mark of a believer is setting aside a sum of money regularly and giving it to the Lord, a tenth and beyond. Based on your understanding of Scripture, I know there's some debate about, you know, well, well, this and that. That's for another place and another time. Nancy and I personally embraced the tithe many years ago and then beyond, way beyond. We've been been on on a journey beyond that ever since then. And giving it to the Lord. And friends, I love kingdom nonprofits. I love parachurch ministries. But there is only one place that you can be certain that you are giving to the Lord, and that's in a local church. The thing that he spoke to Peter about at, at, at Caesarea Philippi. A Bible believing church doing the work of Christ in its community and beyond. That's where we start. Our giving can be in other places, but that's where we start. And I hear a lot of people say, well, well, 10%, Jim, you know, that feels like a lot. Well, hold on, let's just stop and think about that. I'm a simple man. Went to the University of Georgia, so it can't be too complicated, or else I wouldn't understand it. Back in the day when it was, it was easy to get into Georgia. Today, you would have to be really smart to get into the University of Georgia. Thank goodness I was back then. But. So, so get, let me get this right. In, in the tithe, he's given me 100%. I render one back to him, and then I have nine. Doesn't feel like too much in view of what he did at Calvary, does it? We came to the cross totally undeserving. We know that. Not even worthy, as as the old uh, liturgy that we used to say before communion, not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under his table. But he made us to... He reconciled us to himself by the offering of his son on our behalf. And 10%? If it was 25%, by the way, if you study the Old Testament, some of you probably have, you know in the Old Testament there wasn't just one tithe, there were two, and then there was one that happened every three years. So if you actually do the math, if you're going to take the Old Testament literally, then a tithe would be, 20% every year, and then another 10% every three years, or if you were a University of Georgia graduate like me, that would be 20, you know, 23 and a third percent every, every year, right? You would do that. And that's a whole different conversation. But the conversation is really this. What's in our hearts as it relates to what he's put under our stewardship? And why is it so easy for us to grip it like this when he meant for us to do this. And friends, what I want you to hear today is it's not about how much money your church needs. It's about what you and I do. 
based on our understanding of what he's done in our lives, what he's put under our possession, and what he wants us to do to bring honor and glory to him. He means for us to trust him more. He means for us to be more content. He means for us to be more satisfied. He means for us to honor him more with our giving. He wants us to be transformed. Nancy and I would say to you, there's very few things that have transformed us more since 1983 than our journey in giving. Very few things. Very few things. And that's what we miss in the church. Inadvertently, the church in America has allowed this conversation to become very transactional. And God has meant for this, for this whole conversation to be transformational. That it transform us, which then releases resources back into the church so that the church can thrive. Are you following me on this? Paul, Paul said this so well in Philippians 4.17. He said it this way. Paul said this. He said, I, I sought, he, was, he was thanking the church at Philippi for what they had given to him. He said, I sought not the gift for my own account, but for the increase that comes to your account. Are you with me on that? So when, when you give to Lake Oconee, Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church, the church is, is grateful for what you've done, but the greater work that happens is what happens to you and your relationship with God as you make that gift. That's the big idea. That's the big idea that the that, that, that whole scripture is trying to teach us. It's interesting to me that, 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 you know, I think all of us on that day, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, you know there's only one place in the Bible that that shows up, and one place, and the criteria is faithful stewardship. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. It's not like, you know, fought the good fight, finished the race. There's a lot of ways you could do that, right? I'm still trying to convince Nancy that that goes on my tombstone. She says, nope, could have turned out a lot worse. That's what's going on your tombstone. So can y'all help me after chapter church? And she's right. She knew me when I was not a Christian, and so she knows how badly this could have turned out. Fought the good fight, finished the race, is what our friends say about us at our funeral. Well done, good and faithful is what we hear face to face. And the Bible seems to say that criteria is in Matthew 25. And it really has a lot to do. And by the way, not only well done, good and faithful, but the other guy, the third servant, did not, did not hear Hey, that was a good try, buddy. He heard wicked and lazy. And so what, what, what's on my heart, the holy discontent that I have in continuing the work that I'm doing and make sure, sure that the movement that has started through the company that I have continues well past mine is to make sure that the American church becomes aware of this. That it's not about your gift to the church as much as it is what happens to you when you make that gift to the church. When you honor God with what he's put under your management under your trust under your stewardship and you do that and it changes you and it changes our churches so it's a test of how deeply we've been formed as a result of trusting Christ and I don't want us to miss that so what happens to a group of people who commit their lives and their and their and their hearts to these holy habits teaching fellowship the breaking of bread prayer and worship generosity there was great power in what those early disciples did and look at what God did as a result of these holy habits in verse 47 and the Lord added to their number day by day day by day those who were being saved there's no greater work that happens in and through the church than when we add to our number of those who are being saved and God did that 
in and through these early disciples who were marked by those five things. God released that power in and through the early church, and he could do that in and through us. Their posture positioned them so God could do great work in and through them. And as we heed to these holy habits, he'll do the same in and through us. But what he looks for is people and situations that have his name written all over it. Not our names, but his name. Not my will, which I'm really good at, but thy will be done on earth, which is defiled as in heaven, which is perfect. The ways of heaven made real right here on earth in the midst of our holy habits. Father, would you take these words? Would you seal our hearts with something that you would want to do in and through us? Would you erase any thoughts that might not be according to your name and your purposes for, for our gathering here today, Father? I thank you for the honor to even speak. Certainly I know my own unworthiness to speak on your behalf. I trust that you would use that, Father, in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name and would bring just great prospering and thriving, not only for this church, but, but especially for the people in this church as they understand and release themselves back to you for the ministry that you would do in and through here. Father, we ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing our closing hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be.
Jim and Nancy, thank you so much for being with us today. Jim, thank you for that powerful message. And I guess for me, and I hope for all of us, that the Lord is moving in our hearts that what the Lord wants most of all, and this is what LOPC 2.0 is, and pretty soon I'm going to quit saying 2.0. This is what LOPC is to be about. It's what God is doing in our hearts. God loves us so much, he's given us his son, Jesus Christ, and God wants our hearts. And my heart, my desire is that our hearts would be so captivated that just as we sang in that last hymn, we'd say, take my life, all of me. And see, our pocketbooks, our checkbook, however you want to look, that's just a barometer. That's all it is. It's a barometer of where our hearts are and our desires, our hearts would be captivated by the only thing that can satisfy our hearts, and that is Jesus Christ. I hope you've been blessed by today. Enjoy fellowship. And friends, let's raise our hands to receive the Lord's blessing, his benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this day, this week, and forevermore. Amen.